Good morning. How's everyone doing today? Hey, before we get into the message today, I just want to let you know that our fearless leaders, John and Lacey, are back starting this week. Um, if, you're, if you're new with us this summer, you may have seen a lot of different people preaching and teaching all part of the team and the family here at Hill City, but John and Lacey are the founding pastors here and have been on sabbatical, so they are back. You'll hear from John next week, and I'm looking forward to hearing what God's been showing them and teaching them in their time of rest, so it's been really good. So, And I thank you guys for just um, being so amazing this summer, truly, like so much good, so much ministry has happened, which is a great sign of their leadership that all of this just continues. Um, So this has been great. We are going to be wrapping up this series called God 101 today. So if you were here with us, last, uh, last week was part one. This week is part two. And even making it part one and part two kind of separates the reality of who God is. So if you weren't here with us last week, you may want to go back and listen to part one as well. But I'm just going to give us a little recap before we get into the second part of this series, which is this idea that God is powerful. Okay, so we started with this idea that God is good, and we're going to see that today in our scripture. But we, we kind of opened up with me sharing with some stats from what's happening in our country, and this idea that maybe we have less of a problem of actually believing in God and more of a problem of knowing who God is in the first place because there's a lot of different feelings, right, about who God is, particularly when we have to try to answer the question that you've seen on the screen here, which is if God is so whatever. If God is so loving, why does evil happen? If God is so powerful, why would he allow things to continue, etc.? And so we talked about this idea of who's God and what's the one word association that comes when we think about God. And this is what the staff team came up with. We talked about God being redeeming, compassionate, faithful. Do I have those slides or not? It's okay if I don't. <laughs> Just keep talking. But um, God's a creator. He's a restorer. Um, but really that there's a tension, Right. And that tension is that tension point that I was just talking about with someone even this week, which is, if God is all good, then he must not be powerful, because why would he allow evil and suffering in the world? But if God is all powerful, he must not be good, because he would know about all of this stuff that we experience and he wouldn't be acting. But what we know from scripture is that the nature of God is both good and powerful. And last week, we talked about God is good. God is personal. God is patient. God is humble. That we see that play out in the story of when God's revealing himself. And that's the place that we're going in our text today, which is about the story of Moses. So we opened up with the story of Moses, of God revealing himself to Moses, around the idea that when God revealed himself to Moses, it wasn't the first time that God revealed himself. But when Moses asked God, what is your name? What he was actually asking is, why does it matter? who you are. And that's when God said, I am who I am. That the thing that matters about me is that I'm with you. And this is essentially what makes God good, is this concept that God is with us. But not just that, because the nature of God is both good and powerful. So we're going to skip ahead in the story all the way to Exodus 33. And just so you know, remember I talked about the idea that Moses was in this progressive revelation of who God is. And by the way, that's going to be our story too. That you may be a person who says, yeah, I said yes to Jesus at five years old at vacation Bible school. Or I'm kind of somewhere on the journey, but I like coming around Hill City. I don't know what's happening. That's the story of revelation with God. Like we have this whole lifetime to discover who God is. And when we look at what's happening with Moses, we see that too. 
So Exodus 3, God's like, I am who I am. Like, here's a burning bush. I'm with you, right? And it's like, okay, just march into Pharaoh. It's all going to work out. It was so tough. Everything was hard. When finally the Israelites come out of Egypt, they come out with all these signs and wonders. And if you remember this part of the story, the sea parts, you know, and they're able to like walk through the sea. Wow, like God is so good, you know? And like the next morning they already forgot about what God does, which Jesus tells us about in the New Testament because every time Jesus does a miracle, he's like, hey, I just did a miracle and you still don't believe who I am. So clearly signs and wonders are not enough. And this is what we see with Moses too. It's like miracle after miracle, but it's hard. What they're going through is difficult. And they kind of had this idea of the promised land, but it's so tough to get there. And so we see Moses in this position of being the leader, of being the one of faith who's like trying to understand who God is, but the people are tough to lead. And it just keeps being really tough. And so at one point, Moses comes to, comes to God. The people have just really messed up. This might have been the, the worst part. And by the way, the people, that's us. Like, this is who we would be. So just identify. So Moses has disappeared onto a mountain for a long time. They kind of give up hope that he's not coming back. They start doing their own thing. Moses shows up. They're worshiping a golden calf. It's just melee in the camp. It's just people are running wild. And God's like, you know what? Forget about it. And really, <laughs> and Moses is like, no, no, like God, this is your people. This is your people. Now, do we really think God was gonna forget about it? Or was God engaging Moses in relationship because God is personal, God is patient, God is good. So he's engaging with Moses and we see that as this agitation is happening, as faith gets difficult, as the struggles get harder, it's actually creating in Moses a hunger to know more of who God is. And I share all that before we even get into the text, guys, because we have to understand that that's how faith works. Now, we might not fully understand, we'll talk about this at the end, like, we're not gonna fully understand suffering. We're not gonna fully understand why things sometimes are the way we are. But what we can know is that the agitation that pain creates is an opportunity. And that opportunity is one where we develop a hunger, right? To know, to understand, to see more of who God is if we allow that to happen. So Exodus 33, let's pick this up. So, God, so Moses is basically like, God, I don't wanna go. Like, I can't lead these people if you're not with us. Like, I don't even wanna do it. it you've gotta come with us. And God's like, okay, I'm gonna go with you. I'm gonna stay with you. I'm gonna forgive again the people. And then Moses says this in verse 18. He says, now show me your glory, what an interesting request. He's seen that God is loving. He's seen that God is patient. He's seen that God is merciful, that God is leading them, that God is with them. But 30 chapters into the story is when Moses says, can I see your glory? Can I see you for who you really are? And this is what the Lord says. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. And then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Remember what I said? The nature of God is good and powerful. 
So this is a moment where we're seeing goodness and power come together. Exodus 34, the story continues, verse five. And the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And this is what he wanted to say as he passed in front of Moses. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Stay with me. I know if you're listening, you're like, what the heck? What is happening? We're going to get into that in just a second. When Moses came down, okay, so after all this happens, right? You following me in the story? It's tough. Moses is like, this is not fun. This does not feel like what I signed up for. God's like, I don't even want to go with these people. And Moses is like, no, you have to go with the people. You're God. How will they know who we are if you're not with us? So God says, yes, I'll go with you. And in that moment, Moses is like, I need to see more of who you are. God, I want to see your glory. I want to experience you. And so God hides Moses. He covers Moses. He lets him see the back of him. And he proclaims who he is. And he says all of these things. He sort of makes this proclamation about his goodness, about his mercy, about his forgiveness. And then it says, Moses came down from the mountain, Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. This is the Ten Commandment moment, second time around. He was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they they were afraid. They were afraid to come near him. The story goes on, it says every time that Moses was with God, his face was radiant. He had to cover his face with a veil so he wouldn't freak people out because that's what happened when he was in the presence of God. Okay, a lot here, right? A lot of mystery, but I'm gonna try to break it down into the pieces that I think are most important for us to understand. Remember, God is good. He's humble, he's personal, he's patient. But now we see that God is powerful. And we see what God's power looks like here. And every preacher who tries to preach on this should tremble because it's very difficult to understand. But I'm going to give it my best go, right? I'm going to give it my best go on what I think this is really about. And the first thing that we want to know is that God is glorious. God is the source of glory. When he says, show me your glory, everything that happens, the little bit that Moses was allowed to see was an expression of God's glory. Now, this is very difficult for us to understand because we just don't have anything, a definition that makes sense or something in our earthly experience that makes sense. So I'm going to give us what I think is the closest thing that's a feeling that you may feel that happens that most of us understand, okay? And I'm going to do it through four sports clips. Are you ready? Listen, I I consulted my family on these. You can debate later on whether you think these are the right ones, okay? So I'm just going to lay it out for you. And all I want you to do right now is just feel the feeling that you feel when you watch these, okay? So the first one, here we go. Okay, step one. Number two, okay, now, I asked Bree. She, she knew about this. Okay. Here she comes, oh, it's. All eyes were on her as she sprinted down the runway. Two torn ligaments in her ankle. Everyone should know this. This is, this is history, guys. Two torn ligaments in her ankle. First time Team USA ever got gold because she, she vaulted again on her ankle. That's why she landed that way. So that's Carrie Strug, everybody. 
you can tell which one's my favorite. Do you guys know who this is? What's her name? Oh, guys. We need to have a separate seminar. Brandy Chastain, Brandy Chastain, winning the World Cup. Okay, last one, ready? Surely, how many people have an Air Jordan on right now? Beep, there it is, okay. Buzzer beater against the Cavaliers. He won the game 101 to 100. What's the feeling that we have when we see that? Because the feeling we have is sort of level one glory, okay? Even if you're not a sports fan, maybe it's music for you, maybe it's art, maybe it's Disney World. There's something out there that's a transcendent experience. Did you all laugh at that? The people who, <laughs> the people who like Disney are offended now. They're not gonna come back. There are those people. It's a very, very strong subculture. When you meet them, you know. Okay, level one. Level one glory is when praise or honor is like given to something. So level one glory is when we see it happening, right? Level two glory to me is the magnificence that we feel as a whole, right? So like what makes these even better, and we kind of experienced this with COVID when there was no fans, what makes these clips even better is the sound, right? The, re the resonant sound of everybody watching who gets caught up in a moment of what? Human glory. Someone is doing something excellent and then the rest of us get caught up in it. And guys, this is just like the smallest, tiniest fraction of what the glory of God is like. It's like our most minute, limited, but best thing I could come up with to explain what level one and level two glory, but level three glory, which is the kind of glory we're talking about with God, it actually, the Hebrew word means heaviness. It's the weight of meaning. So when I think about what glory is, glory is an experience that simultaneously lifts us and grounds us. Carrie Strug is a cool example because we're lifted in the moment, but we're grounded in the like passion, the perseverance, the suffering that got her to that point and that took the team to gold. And so when we think about what it means to seek God's glory and that God is a God of glory, what we're talking about is the kind of glory that we can get caught up in that simultaneously lifts us. It lifts us, it takes us higher. It changes our perspective. We get caught up in it. The, the minute worries of the day, the pains of the world are lost in the lifting, but actually glory itself is also heavy in the sense that it's weighty and it grounds us into deeper things. Does that make sense? It's the best I could come up with about God's glory if you think about what Moses experienced, right? Because Moses is experiencing transcendent joy in the presence of God, and at the same time, he's afraid. It's scary, <laughs> because the other thing that makes God powerful is his holiness. God is also holy. Back in Exodus 3 that we talked about last week, if you remember when Moses approaches the burning bush and God says, take off your sandals, the place you're standing is holy ground. This concept of holiness is altogether different than what we experience in the world. Holiness is about being set apart. 
Holiness is about being different. Pastor and author Tim Keller says that on our journey with God, it makes sense when we want to know God in his love. That's attractive. It makes sense that we want to know God in his mercy. That's good for us. It makes sense that we want to know him in his compassion. But it's an entirely different thing to want to know his holiness. Because holiness is what will transform you. Holiness is the desire for God to come into your life and to transform every part of your existence. Casual Christians don't seek holiness because holiness is gonna come at a cost and holiness makes us feel a certain way. Because holiness is about something that is so sacred that we feel limited in its presence. Have you ever just been around like a, a, a golden person? <laughs> like just everything about them? You're like, I felt good about myself and now I feel terrible because you got a perfect score on your SATs, you played the cello for the Richmond Symphony, you also were in the World Cup and you found the cure for cancer. You know, I just made that up, but you know what I'm talking about. You meet a, and they're like a wonderful, humble, loving person. And when we get near that, we're like, oh, gosh, I'm not doing so great. That's, that's kind of the, the, the idea of holiness, that God's perfection, his power, his perfectness is hard to be in because in holiness, we see our darkness. So we don't pursue holiness until we're actually really seeking the things of God. We may seek God's love. We may like the idea of Jesus being our companion and Jesus being our friend, but you will not be transformed as a Christian until you seek God's holiness. If I was to describe holy, here's two things that I think kind of work for what holiness is like. Holiness is like light and holiness is like gravity. Darkness is always obliterated by light, no matter how small the light is. Darkness is simply an absence of light. So as soon as light comes in, darkness can no longer coexist. Light is so powerful, it cannot change based on darkness. So when people think, well, why would God be holy? Why would he be wrathful? Why wouldn't he allow Moses to be in his presence? Well, if holiness is like light, the presence of light will obliterate darkness. So anything less than perfect that is in God's presence will be obliterated, which is why God was like, you can't see me face to face. The light of my presence will obliterate your darkness. So I'm gonna hide you, I'm gonna cover you, you're gonna see the back of me, because if you're in the true presence of God's glory and holiness, if you are anything less than perfect, it will be obliterated. It's not because he doesn't like you, it's because it's just a law of the universe that light always obliterates darkness. Here's another one, gravity. Gravity, what's gravity? Well, it's holding us here, right? Newton said it's a force, Einstein said it's a distortion of the space-time continuum, whatever that means. There's a lot of theories about gravity, but here's the truth, no one actually really knows exactly what it is or how it works. All we know is that it exists. We have experiences, we're living proof of the fact that gravity is gravity no matter what. And you don't get any, there's no, like, no other qualifications for gravity. So when we talk about God's holiness, it's important to think of it like those things. I can, I can hem and haw about how I don't want to be subject to gravity. I can try to make all kinds of ways to not be subject to gravity, but gravity is a force that exists. It just is. God's holiness is inherent to his nature. It's the central part of who he is. It's his perfection. It's his faithfulness. It's his consistency. And it may be scary, but we want a God who is holy. We want a God who is consistent, 
who is perfect, who is so glorious and so other that we cannot even see him face to face until we ourselves have been transformed. The process of our life here on earth is a process of becoming more and more holy. This is why, what's the name of what Jesus left us? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not good spirit, although he's good. Not patient spirit, although he's patient. But the central kind of quality of who God is, is this holiness, that God is holy. So God is glorious, God is holy, and God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Sovereign means that God is consistent in his promises, he's in control of the outcome, and his power and goodness are perfectly captured in his sovereignty. In fact, earlier in the scripture, what God says is, I have heard you. And what he was actually talking about is he was, I I have heard you all the way back in Genesis. I've heard the cry of my people. God is consistent in his promises. He does what he says he's going to do. Now, we will wrestle with that, right? Because we may not feel him or experience him in this moment doing that, but that doesn't change the fact that this is who he says he is. Let's look at what that sovereignty looks like. Let's go back to that difficult passage that we looked at a moment ago when God names himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Don't lose all of this in the hard part, right? So here's who God is proclaiming himself to be compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is super important to understand, you guys, because people who read this or have seen this, this is one of those obstacles to understanding who God is. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation, right? That's what it says. It says that guilt is past, but here's what we understand about scripture. Anytime we get, I've said this to you guys before, anytime you get to something that's hard to understand, you wanna understand what it, other, what it says other places in scripture. This is why we have discipleship signups. This is why we have discipleship groups where we say, hey guys, commit to a group for six months because you're not gonna be able to do this in a 25 minute sermon when we get into this, but it's awesome what's there when you learn how to dig into scripture. And so when we read this passage, we gotta ask, okay, wait, God said he's loving and compassionate. And then the next thing he says is that he's cursing other people's children for their own sin. No bueno, like something does not add up, okay? So you don't have to be scared when something doesn't add up. It's okay to be agitated and to ask the question, what could this really mean? And so still, a lot of times people will talk about this passage and they'll say, oh, this is how it was, but it's different with Jesus. That is, that is true, but actually, this is how it was, and this is not the full story, because still in the Old Testament, still before Jesus, there's other passages that make it really clear that this is not fully what Jesus means, that, or excuse me, that God means, that God wants to curse us and hold it over our heads, is what it sounds like. But in Ezekiel 18, and I don't have this up for you, but in Ezekiel 18, it says very, very clearly, the one who sins is guilty. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. So still in the Old Testament, there's multiple passages that seem to directly contradict what this is saying. So anytime we find a contradiction like that, we wanna ask ourselves, what might be here for us to understand? How do we fully acknowledge and know what is happening here? It also talks about this in Deuteronomy, same thing. It, It absolutely says that a person will only be responsible for what they have done, right? 
Okay, so what is this then? I think what we see here in this passage, as best I understand it, is that God is proclaiming the truth of generational brokenness. Now, you don't have to go far in your story to probably know if you come from a broken family or not. Generational brokenness is what makes alcoholism pass down through generations. Generational brokenness is why so many people who abuse others are they themselves abused. Some stats say it's up to 90%. Generational brokenness is the reality that when there are misdeeds in families, they do have generational impact down the line. But what else does God say? God says, bringing my love to thousands of generations bringing my redemption and restoration to thousands of generations. That's what he couples this point with. So another way to say this would be that God calls to account the misdeeds and mistreatment against both God and man. This concept of punishment, when translated in the Hebrew, actually means calls to account. It means he, he has not forgotten. He's not forgotten what's hurt and broken and abusive in your family line. However... He uses a literary device right here where he says, compared to that third and fourth generation, I spread my love to thousands of generations. God is saying my love and my goodness and my power can overcome even generational brokenness. Because if I could spread my love to thousands of generations, that third and fourth is like nothing compared to the redemption that I can do in a family. You know, I started my sort of ministry life as a therapist. And I don't think there was anything more powerful. Like, really, truly, it felt to me that for some of the people that I spent time with, their greatest life's work was breaking the curse of their family. Their greatest life's work was becoming the person who says, I am no longer going to live into these patterns anymore that I've experienced in my family. It was like a miracle. And God would meet them in that and literally change the course of their life. Because the natural course of events says where you come from is who you're going to be. But God's course of events says God is good and powerful and his sovereignty overcomes that. And so when we look at this passage, we want to read that in the context of knowing it can't just mean God is cursing generation after generation. It means something so much more powerful. God can hold together justice and mercy in a way that we cannot fully comprehend, but we can be in a progressive journey with him of discovering more and more of his glory and his holiness. When Moses came down from the mountain, his face was radiant. It freaked people out. They wanted him to cover it up. It was scary to them. Have you ever met someone who's like new in love and you're like, oh, you're glowing? Like that's sort of the concept here. You know, this happens again in the New Testament. Jesus shows himself to three of his disciples. It's, it happens, it's the story of the transfiguration. We can't get into it right now, but basically Jesus shows his glory and it freaks them out. I mean, it's just, it's too much for us almost. It's too, too much power, too much goodness, too much holiness to fully take in. To be in the presence of God is to be affected. It's to be changed. The presence of God impacts human beings. So what keeps us from being interested in holiness? I think what keeps us interested, not interested in holiness is complacency. And what makes us complacent? A life free of pain. You see, this is where the struggle begins when we talk about why would God allow suffering? Because the human experience seems to be that without pain, 
we drift into complacency. C.S. Lewis said that pain is a megaphone that forces us to reckon with God. See, the opposite of holiness is not evil. The opposite of holiness is ordinary, just profane. It's just normal. Holiness is set apart. The opposite is normal. And the opposite of love isn't hate. It's indifference. It's apathy. So pain is the thing that can actually agitate us enough to ask the important questions. So I'm going to take a stab for a moment at this question of suffering. If God is good, why does he allow evil to persist in the world? If God is powerful, why doesn't he intervene? Why didn't he answer my prayer? Why did he allow this thing to happen to an innocent person? Why did he allow this thing to happen to me? And I think we've got to ask ourselves, we've got to kind of pull back a little bit. And we've got, to, we've got to do the work of asking ourselves, okay, well, what's the alternative? Because suffering will exist in the world no matter what. The question is, how are we going to make meaning of suffering? To remove the concept of God does not remove suffering. So we still have to actually think about it, right? So let's, let's work through it. Okay. What about suffering? Okay, if suffering exists, God must not exist. The kind of evil and suffering that we see in the world, what if there was no God? Well, if there was no God, why do we have like a moral compass anyway? If there was no God, if we're just a biological reality and we're a bunch of cells that came together, then all the world tells us that death is part of life. All the world tells us that the strong always overcomes the weak. So I guess that's what it is. Listen, that's a really hard thing to reckon with, but that's, that's an option because if there's no God, why do you even believe in justice in the first place? Because the world doesn't operate on justice. The world operates on conquering and killing and conquest and death. That's the natural order of things. So that's not very satisfying. It's difficult to find an answer for suffering with no God. So maybe he's a bad God. <laughs> maybe he's a capricious God. Maybe he acts as he wants and he disregards humans. Well, the problem with that argument is Jesus. Because why would a God who's capricious and doesn't care about humans, doesn't operate, send his son? And, and why would Jesus come and do miracles and actually suffer unto death to prove his love? Why would Jesus come and say, this is how you know what love is? that I lay down my life for you. That doesn't make any sense for a bad or fickle God. That doesn't make any sense in what we would understand about any sort of God myths out there, Greek, Roman, otherwise. So he's not a capricious God. What if he is a good God? What if God is both all good and all powerful and suffering and evil still exists? What would be some alternative ways forward? If yeah, God is good and I still can't fully understand this, but what can I understand? The first thing I think we can understand is that God is faithful to himself. God is faithful to who he says he is. That glory, that power, that holiness means he's faithful to himself, which means if he gives human beings freedom to make choices, he can't give some of us freedom to make choices and some of us not freedom to make choices. He can't decide, well, you guys are good and you're probably gonna handle this well, so you, you, you're free. But you guys are no good. You're not going to handle it well at all. So I'm going to just intervene. God is faithful to himself. So when he says that he has given freedom to humans, right? When he gave freedom for Adam and Eve to choose the tree, when he gives freedom for people to choose him or reject him, he's basically being faithful to who he is. And so we have to reckon 
with what humans do with freedom. <laughs> we got to reckon with what that looks like in our world, in our communities, in our systems. That's part of the problem, right? That doesn't answer everything, but it gives us a place to start. It doesn't answer why innocent kids have cancer. But here's what else we know about God. God is strong enough for our questions. God doesn't just like just acknowledge our questions. He's not like, oh, just okay with them. He actually welcomes our questions because he put in his word so many places where humans are asking questions of who he is. In the book of Psalms, which is sort of poetry, 20 times across the Psalms, here's the kind of questions that are asked. There's questions about the way of the world. Why do nations conspire and people plot in vain? Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? Why do the nations say, where is their God? These, these psalmists are asking questions. God, where are you in the world? Why is the world the way it is? These are straight from the Psalms. There's questions about the human condition. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And do you know what the most questions are about? Not about the world not about our own condition. The questions that God welcomes are questions about himself. Honest, raw questions about himself. Look at these, why Lord do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? Apparently, God is okay with questions because they, he put them in his letter to us. He wanted it to be so clear that he welcomes our actual humanity that he didn't like make it all sound good about himself. He wasn't like, here's the 400. He actually says, this is how it is to engage with me. And what happens in all of these Psalms, if you go and read the Psalms, and if you, if you resonate with those guys, I just wanna encourage you to be in the Psalms. Go to that place where you'll be like, oh, this human being is experiencing God the way I experience God. And what you find in the Psalms is that they usually end with this like sort of resolute, you know what though? God is good and he is powerful and I'm gonna trust him. Because what are my alternatives? What are my other options? And then God comes through because he's faithful to our promises. Finally, God connects our experience with suffering to our experience of glory. God connects what happens in our life here to what happens with our experience of glory. Romans 8, 17 says, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we, must, that we may also share in his glory. Now, that's a hard thing to understand, except and unless complacency doesn't yield holiness, unless complacency in a life free of pain and struggle doesn't actually draw us to God. What if actually the suffering that we experience is the most meaningful part of our experience of knowing God? What if it is the hard things that actually bring us to a place where we experience, remember glory is simultaneous lifting and simultaneous grounding that we can become humans who walk around moving toward holiness and that that holiness is the light that we bring to the world, that we ourselves can glow with the experience of God and that in doing so, our sufferings actually feel more like momentary troubles, which is how Paul describes them, because we've experienced the glory of God. 
Now what's difficult about a message like this is if you're in between. If you're a person who's experienced suffering but you haven't experienced the glory of God. But I want you to know, like we said last week, if you seek him, you will find him. If you seek him with your whole heart. And seeking him with your whole heart says, God, if I'm gonna know your suffering, I wanna know your glory. Show me your glory. Because when we have experienced the glory of God for even a moment, we are transformed. We are changed. And suffering is still difficult and we still walk and bear the burdens with each other, but we do it differently. What if suffering and sharing in his glory makes you okay with pain? It allows your heart to suffer with others but not break under the weight. It allows you to bear witness to the way that pain and suffering can actually bring this glory. To learn through the shout of our own pain and the pain of others that we need a father in heaven, although he almost never responds to our demands for explanation with clear answers, he does give us the one thing that cannot be disputed. God expresses his good and powerful nature not through an answer, but through a life. That life is Jesus, who entered into suffering, reconciles the suffering we ourselves could never repair, and then he offers us comfort and presence and glory in our suffering. Psalm 34, four through six says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those to look, who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. As we take one minute to think, I wanna leave that scripture up there because to me, this scripture is an end state. This is like a place to arrive, to imagine a place where I can seek the Lord, experience him answering me, take my fears to him, experience him alleviating my fears, and move into life with no shame, no regret, and just radiance because I encountered the presence of God. Let's take a moment of silence and then I'll close this in prayer.